Hello and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card. I'm Austin and with me as always is my co-host Connor. How are you today, Connor? I'm doing pretty great. We've uh, got a, a nice late night show lined up here. Yeah, I should have said how are you tonight, Connor, because I think this is the latest we have ever recorded and you can hear that a little bit as I struggle with the word latest. Yeah, I mean that is that is two syllables in there. It's a pretty tough word, you know. Happily, Kamigawa, all the words in this block are just super easy to pronounce, so I'm sure it should be yeah, easy peasy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as foreshadowed today, we are returning to our uh, ongoing Champions of Kamigawa block review. Uh, today, picking it up with the Betrayers of Kamigawa black cards. Yeah, uh, we've got some um, some interesting cards in store. Uh, a couple mm-hmm. of, or <laughs> a couple, or maybe just one uh, real <laughs> bomb. <laughs> Yeah, there's one true beggar in here, we promise. And uh, a lot of um, very Kamigawa-ish cards. Yeah, and if you're uh, if you're new to the show, so uh, Clock Spinning is a show where we review things card by card. One of our ongoing projects is to review the entire Champions of Kamigawa block and build a cube along the way. But really, the main point is to talk about the history of these cards, trivia, where they fit into competitive magic, where they fit into EDH, cube, etc. There are all kinds of fun trivia like that. Uh, and so we're, I think, almost exactly halfway through here with uh, Betrayers of Kamigawa Black. So if you're interested in the whole thing, you could start over all the way, all the way back at Champions of Kamigawa White or Betrayers of Kamigawa White or just dive in. It's fine. Uh, you'll you'll enjoy hearing about some exciting, really bad cards. Uh, and if you are no, new, you can also uh, follow along with a list of cards uh, that'll be linked in the show notes. Or you can go check out the YouTube video uh, where we show an image of each card as we talk about it. Clockspinning.com for all of those links. <laughs> All right, well, first up today, we have Bile Urchin. Bile Urchin is a single black for a 1-1 spirit and sacrifice Bile Urchin, target player loses one life. And then the flavor text, the two youths argued and tempers flared. One youth opened his mouth to utter a vile curse, but what he spat out instead was a kami of poison and filth. Sensei Golden Tail. Uh, so this card is is kind of like, what, Mog Fanatic, basically, or Frostling, to take the Kamigawa version of that. Um, and the later on Death Cultist, uh, who is exactly this card, but instead it's target player loses one life and you gain one life, which, let's be honest, is kind of what this card probably should be. Uh, it feels really weird to me that this just loses a life. As far as, like, playability of this card, I'm not feeling it for our cube. Uh, this card is bad. One ones with no real upside are basically unplayable in in normal limited magic this card seems like nowhere near good enough to make an exception for that but i do like the uh i like the card i like the art it's a uh, gross but also sort of small in a way that makes sense for a little one one creature i like the little story told in the flavor text and i wish kamigawa had more flavor text like this it like brings the world of kamigawa to life you know the way that the kami emerge from all the different actions and people take and the creatures and things in the world and the natural world all bring these kami into being and i think this tells that story in a really elegant way instead of the kind of more heavy-handed way we see on some other flavor text so while this card for me is an insta cut in our rating system uh, as far as like flavor and uh doing a good job telling a story i give this card pretty high marks yeah i like that that flavor point because the story that we're being told here by sensei golden tail is that this this kami of poison and filth has been spat out by a youth trying to utter a vile curse so it makes sense that this bile urchin would just be this i guess gross little 
lizard bug thing. Yeah, lizard bug, gross little lizard bug, dude. Yeah, yeah, it, it fits. The uh, the comparison to Death Cultist is interesting uh, because that, of course, drains. You know, opponent loses one life, you gain one life, and I I don't think that was really much of a thing at all in Black's color identity back in the Bioerchin days. You know, having your opponent lose life for sure, and you know there was definitely some life gain effects, but the, that kind of ping opponent for one and gain one life, I don't think appeared nearly as often as it does now. That is super interesting. I'm going to go take a look at that and see if I can find see if I can find any scryfall search to see when that came about. Help help validate me. I think power level, yeah, this is this is like a basically a player targeting frostling, which I think is a lot worse. He's he's not going to be having much impact on games as cute as he is. So, looking at um the history of kind of drain effects in magic, so that was still part of Black's color pie at this point in Magic. So it looks like the very first one was Ebony Charm from Mirage, um, which among other uh, underwhelming modes can uh, cause an opponent to lose one life and you gain one life. Uh, some other notable examples, Subversion um, from the Urza's block, uh, of course, Tendrils of Agony uh, from Scourge. And then in Kamigawa block, we actually have Death of a Thousand Stings, which is a funny ultra slow win condition from uh, Saviors that drains for one. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. Yeah, uh, so it looks like this was part of Black's color pie at this point, although it's become much more common since then, which further makes me question, like, come on, this is a card that, to me, I read it and I actually assume that it's a drain effect until I read it carefully, you know, just because it seems so natural that it would work that way. That's uh, that's what Kamigawa does best, is, is <laughs> under-delivering. That's right, doing just a little bit less than you would think. Yep. This card does have uh, a cup, a smattering of EDH play. It appears in 450 decks, which I think is more than it deserves. Uh, one notable card it sees play with is Infernal Kirin, uh, who's a Saviors of Kamigawa um, legend, who whenever you play a Spirit or Arcane spell, target player reveals his or her hand and discards all cards with that spell's mana value. Uh, and so that's kind of cute with Bile Urchin um, in that it's just a one-drop spirit that can steal all the one-drops out of your opponent's hand, so you can take out their Soul Ring or... Um, there are other kind of impactful early game one mana plays. So that's kind of cute. Yeah, that's that's something. Yeah. Uh, what about ratings, Connor? So we rate uh, every card from Instacut all the way up to auto-include. If you're new to the rating system, just check out our Betrayers of Kamigawa review, and we have a little explanation at the start. So what do you rate this, Connor? I'm just an Instacut. I don't think this does enough to merit inclusion in the cube. Yeah, I don't think any new listeners need to worry about the the nuances of our middle ratings because this is just an easy insta cut yeah all righty okay let's uh let's move on to one that might be a more challenging rating for both of us this is blessing of leeches 2b for an enchantment aura with flash enchant creature at the beginning of your upkeep you lose one life and you can pay zero mana yes zero to regenerate enchanted creature so this is a, a really interesting and and cool card that i think has some kind of special potential in in kamigawa in a few ways i think we'll get into but is i think actually also just like pretty damn good in the environment that we're building with our cube this protects against ren flesh and ren spirit which are a couple of the you know kind of mainstay black removal spells in kamigawa uh, protects against most other uh, removal that we see in this block. Losing one life at the beginning of your upkeep, I really don't think is that much of a price to pay. You know, uh, just like 
Bile Urchin is not having much impact by causing your opponent to lose one life. I don't think Blessing of Leeches hurts that much to keep around for a while. And on top of all that, it flashes in for some combat trickiness. So I think this is actually like really good. I'm I'm right there with you. I think this is it's a super unique effect. Um I don't know if you mentioned this, but this is I think the only zero cost regeneration like in magic. Yes, yeah, as, as far as I could tell, it I think it's definitely unique among like regeneration auras mm-hmm. uh in having a completely free regeneration activation cost. Most auras cost a little bit of mana or they make you sacrifice something else or, you know, pay life, like do something. This is just completely free. You can, you know, regenerate your creature a hundred times a turn. Which it's worth noting in this environment, any environment, but especially this environment, is like really freaking obnoxious. Like there is not a lot of removal that this doesn't blank. Uh, Like the most important removal uh, in the block is probably Rend Spirit and Rend Flesh uh, and then um, Glacial Ray. This completely blanks all those, and it, it renders irrelevant a large amount of the removal. The, really, the only things that get around it are just a handful of exile effects in white and one in black, Befoul, and Call for Blood. Like There's a pretty limited number of things that can walk around this. And so if you put this on an impactful creature, that creature is basically staying alive until you die to the uh, life loss in your upkeep. Like This is a really meaningful uh, form of protection. And then you add Flash on top of it as like a combat trick, and like this... Almost acts like removal, right? It turns what should have been a trade into a not trade, and then it leaves the surviving creature uh, way too hard to deal with. Like this is a this is a pretty powerful effect. I guess uh, EDH recognizes that because this appears in what to me was a pretty shockingly high number of decks on EDH rec. It's in six thousand. Whoa! What? Wow! <laughs> um, and you know, as you mentioned, Bile Urchin is in like less than five hundred. Just a little comparison there. Uh, it makes me very happy to see that the top commanders. The top commanders, based on like newness and percentage of decks that use the card, are in order: Yargol and Multani mm-hmm. from March of the Machine, Morinfen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no way. We had occasion to mention in our last episode, and Yargol. <laughs> Just for anyone so, who doesn't know Morinfen, a super obscure Phyrexian legend from uh, early Magic, who I'd never even heard of until we reviewed it in our uh, early Phyrexians episode last episode. <laughs> well, I th- I think that the the a reason for Blessing of Leeches in there must be to contribute to the life loss because Morinfen <laughs> has a, a cumulative upkeep of losing one life. Just so, leaning all the way into it. Yeah, so I don't know That's if you're amazing. trying to do Death Shadow or like what you're working toward with all that life loss, but I guess <laughs> Blessing of Leeches is getting you ever closer to death for whatever you're doing with Morinfen. And I also love that that two of those top commanders uh, are some form of Yargle. Yeah, it's either plain vanilla Yargle or Yargle and Boltani. That's awesome. Yep. yep. Yeah, the uh, the other thing about this card is I think the art just... Uh, almost all Rebecca Gway pieces are great. But this one I particularly like just because of the subtle horror of it. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Hairstrung Kodo, another kind of horror-themed uh, Rebecca Gway piece from this block. And that both of them, if you just look at it from across the table, like as a little piece of cardboard where the art is the size of a postage stamp, it just looks like, oh, yeah, there's like a pretty lady in a red dress in a swamp. That's kind of moody and cool. But then you pick it up and you look at it and her cloak is like covered with and perhaps even made of in some form like leeches and her blood. And it becomes really horrific. And I like that uh, that pairing of Rebecca Gway's like very um, kind of wispy, serial, romantic art style with this really horrific subject matter. I think that's just an incredibly strong uh, piece of art. You know what it reminds me of is Ron Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Right? Like all the bugs? 
Yeah, uh, glaze bugs are more... I feel like the bugs here are... It's like an abstract horror, right? It's like knowing that they're leeches makes them gross. But I feel like Rod Spencer, if you gave this to Rod Spencer, we would get a lot more up close and personal with these leeches. I am I am so glad that Rod Spencer did not get his <laughs> oh hands on Blessing of Leeches. Oh my God. There would be so many mandibles and folds in their skin. It would be disgusting. Oh, loving yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad they gave it to Rebecca Quay. Yeah, this is my cut. This is the level of leech horror I'm prepared to this accept. Is, uh, this this is as close as Austin wants to get. We're maybe ten feet from the subject, and that that's all the <laughs> yeah, leech that Austin. That wants. is my leech limit. Uh, the closest I've ever been to a leech in person was at the uh, the animal market in Istanbul, and there were just jars and jars of leeches around. And it really disturbed me. So like, it, yeah, this is this is as close as I want to get. Uh, I I wonder if they were using those for regeneration in terms of the cube i realized i forgot to rate this and i think that's just because i was like oh yeah this is making it (laughs) i didn't even give it the auto include rating i believe it deserves but to me this is an auto include probably at a one x uh one x for two reasons like one i don't think there's a lot of decks that want multiple of this effect due to the life loss and two it is pretty obnoxious and so like a one x feels about right to me even though this was a common in the original set so it presumably showed up quite a bit yeah i I think one x is right i have it at playable because i almost worry that it might be too frustrating like i i don't i don't know that this this breaks any games but um you know it could certainly create some feel bad moments which i guess is fine it could yeah i think the flip side of the feel bads is that uh, you still have the two for one risk albeit mitigated by the regeneration you have the life loss so there your opponent can't just dirtle forever once they uh, cast this and it does count cost three yeah just for like 12 to 16 turns yeah, I, I can be persuaded auto includes a little little hard or going a little hard. I can, I can go down to a playable. Yeah, I mean, I doubt we'll actually cut it, but give ourselves the option, I guess. All right, playable 1x. Cool, cool card. This is one of my favorite cards in this whole episode just because it's, it's such a unique effect. It's a good one. And this isn't even the bomb that we were foreshadowing. That's right. There's even better cards coming, listener. <laughs> it gets even better. <laughs> better than leeches. But first, we got to talk about Call for Blood. Call for Blood is four and a B for an instant arcane. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature. Target creature gets minus X, minus X until end of turn, where X is the sacrificed creature's power. Oh man, this this is a big yikes, right? This is this is like bone shards, but for four more mana, and you must sacrifice mm-hmm. a creature of roughly equal quality in order mm-hmm. to get the kill. So it's like two for one removal that costs more than most remo- one for one removal costs, and it's conditional, and it requires you to give away something good. Like this card is it's, it's kind of laughably bad. I just can't <laughs> believe how bad this is. But but Austin, it's arcane. That that that's true. Yeah, although the five mana means splicing onto it would be kind of a challenge too. <laughs> oh, and it's an instant. Can't say that about bone shards. Yeah, that's uh, one of like two things this has going for it. <laughs> one of the few things you can't say about bone shards. This is just really, really bad, even by Kamigawa standards of removal. Like obviously horrible compared to bone shards. It's bad even compared to something like pull under, which is a a removal spell from champions we looked at that's six mana to give a creature minus five minus five like even playing that feels better than call for blood at least i'm not giving up one of my own creatures that's like as strong as the thing i'm trying to get rid of yeah this thing is uh i don't know it's it's hard to see i honestly flirted with including one in the cube because i i almost like it as this weird like punishment for not prioritizing removal in the draft right it's like oh you did get removal but it's call for blood like <laughs> 
I don't know. There's something about how bad it is that I almost find appealing because it's not it's it's like really bad. I don't think it's like so utterly bad that you wouldn't play it if you didn't have any other removal. Right. Like, I think you'd still you'd still grudgingly stick one in the deck. I think I would. And then like I would I would almost never play it. And then when I finally did, when my back was really up against the wall, I would just feel awful. Yeah. But if you have to use this to kill a Maloku or something, you're going to do it. Right. Yeah. Is that is that the standard we're using? No, no, you're right. It's probably not the standard. To me, this feels like one of those cards where, you know, something happened in development where they just needed to tune the cost. You know, they were like, okay, this is too cheap at whatever it was, two mana or three mana. And they were mm. out of time. So they just tacked on a ton of mana just to avoid any risk of it being too good and limited. Like, I can't see any reason, any rational way you end up at five here. I feel like this probably wants to be in this environment, like, three mana two mana might be too good right like but like uh, this this cost just feels totally ridiculous yeah yeah it's it's absolutely one of those cards where the 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 numbers on it have just become so insane that yeah not really sure what happened during uh during testing of this card to make it this way yeah i can't find i couldn't find any contemporary discussion of this not even like people talking about sealed train wrecks on star city games not even like deck lists from pro tours where someone got stuck with it like this this card is just a dog the one thing i will say is i kind of like the art i like this freaky oni ogre whichever he is uh conjuring up this swirl of blood i think it's nice moody piece of demon art yeah it's it's fine yeah rating wise i assume this is an instacut yeah all right, easy. Easy it's a cut. Let's keep moving. Okay. Um let's keep moving to crawling filth. <laughs> 5B for a 2-2 spirit with fear and soul shift 5. And if you're not familiar with soul shift, it is when this dies, you can return target spirit card with converted mana cost 5 or less, whatever the soul shift value is, from your graveyard to your hand. So this is a <laughs> 6 mana 2-2. Two, two. <laughs> Oh, Kamigawa. Uh, <laughs> I mean, speak, speaking of insane numbers on cards and insane costs, like what what happened to Crawling Filth? Like how can, who's getting that much value out of out of Soul Shift that they're paying six mana for a 2-2 fear? It's honestly kind of baffling because in Champions of Kamigawa, for example, we get um, 100 Talon Kami, which is a five mana 2-3 flyer. Uh, with Soul Shift 4, we get Scuttling Death, which is a 5-mana 4-2 with the relevant uh, activated ability. At Soul Shift 5, aka Mana Value 6, we get Kami of Lunacy, which is a 4-1 Flyer. We get Kami of the Palace Fields, which is a 3-2 Flying First Striker. And we get Night Soul Kami, which is a Crawworm, a 6-4. So, like, I, I don't know what happened to Phil Connor. Like, I feel like if this was a 3-2 or, like, a 2-4, just, just something. Just tack any additional bit of value onto this. And I think I could maybe justify justify it. I don't think it would ever be an exceptional card, but it would be barely defensible. But like a, a two, two for six is just, it's just not acceptable. And I mean, it can't be that the soul shift by itself is that valuable. There's a, a one drop in savior is called promised Kanushi. It's just one green mana for a one, one uh, human actually that has soul, soul shift seven. So I don't like, I just don't understand where the mana cost is coming from here. It almost makes me feel like they were afraid, like a little afraid of fear and giving fear to something that's too big or that's too easy to get out early and early in the game. But then there's other cards that we've already looked at in champions, I think that either give fear or have fear that don't seem to have any of that hesitation on them. So yeah, I just have no idea what's happening with this. 
Yeah, it's confusing. I mean, it's it's valid for them to worry about fear. Fear is, as we've talked about, like a polarized kind of problematic mechanic that's either too good or not good at all. Um, but when I just look at some of the other stuff that got Soul Chef, like the ones I mentioned earlier, and now I, I'm just continuing to look like Gibbering Kami from uh, Champions, four mana, two, two flyer. Like that's not that far off this thing. I don't think uh, fear versus flying is worth two extra mana. It kind of sounded like you said Soul Shaft there. And I think that, oh, dear. that's pretty accurate for... Yeah, I think we got soul shafted on this thing. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is the art on this is like they managed to really like personify and embody the concept of crawling filth because this art is like super super disgusting. There's lots of crawling. There's lots of barfing filth into a filthy swamp. Like it's all kind of pustules and organicy insecty grodiness. So I guess the art is is a win, quote unquote. Yeah, it really is filth on filth. I kind of like it. Hmm. What do you, you like it or you admire it? Because I can admire it, but I can't say I like it. No, I kind of like it. It's it's almost like a, a grosser, more insectoid, like spirited away spirit. And mm-hmm. it's kind of the hear me out, kind of yeah, <laughs> kind I'm, of this massive like limbs and appendages, like barfing this nasty stuff out, like no face. I mean, it's basically no face. Four times grosser. I mean, I, I admire it on a technical level. I think it, like, uh, I never heard of uh, Martina uh, Pilcherova before, but she absolutely nailed the brief here. I think it's a really well done piece. And she's actually looking into her. She's done some other really iconic cards like uh, Hornet Queen, the original Guild of Lotus. Um, she's done some some really great art. So I props to her for this. It's not something I'd hang on my wall, though. I, uh, I actually came across one of these in uh, a box I've been you know, hauling out the the equivalent of my old shoe boxes of of commons and uncommons uh, to finally like index and archive all of them. And I'm holding a crawling filth in my hand right now, just admiring it. Uh, is that enough to bump your rating above an Instacite, Connor? Uh, definitely not. I can I can hold this one that I have in my hand and cut the one we're discussing from the cube. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, let's move on to one of the cycles in the set, uh, the lobotomy cycle. Uh, We're going to talk about Eradicate. Eradicate is 2BB for a sorcery. Exile target non-black creature. Search its controller's graveyard, hand, and library for all cards with the same name as that creature and exile them. Then that player shuffles. I'm pretty high on this. I mean, this strikes me as some seriously premium removal. Four mana, exile in black. Um, with like an actually pretty real upside against any creatures we happen to include in multiples, like our uh, feared Kitsune Blademaster. Like, wow, this card strikes me as some really solid removal with a really meaningful upside that's not too punishing, right? It doesn't take them. It's not like uh, the echoing cycle where it removes them from the battlefield. It just removes them from hand, graveyard, and library. But it it allows you to deal permanently deal with a serious threat. Uh, so I I quite like this thing. I'm pretty high on it. I I am not a huge fan of Eradicate. So this is the third card in a cycle that we've seen in white and blue so far called the Lobotomy Cycle. Uh, the white and blue cards were Scour and Quash, which are great names, but not great cards, I don't think. I think Eradicate is is better than the others in that it you know deals with, with creatures instead of just instants and sorceries or just enchantments. But I feel like in our environment specifically, it's, it's often either going to be kind of an inefficient removal being a four mana sorcery uh, and one that's completely useless in a black versus black matchup. And then when it is more efficient, I feel like it does kind of create a feel bad moment. You know, we don't have that many duplicates in the cube. 
I mean, like overall, there's a large number of duplicates, but there aren't that many copies of four cards. And I don't love the idea of like punishing players who choose to draft multiples of the same card, unless unless that same card is Kitsune Blademaster, who I've kind of <laughs> developed a grudge against. I'm less worried about that. Like for a start, I feel like the most a player realistically is going to pick up of a single card is like two, maybe three. I don't know. I don't think it's unreasonable to, you know, occasionally cause someone to lose. I mean, the worst case scenario is you have one on board and one in hand, and that's a two for one for four. And that feels quite bad, but it's not, that's not the end of the world either. Like, I don't see this really setting up, you know, actual like three for one nightmare scenarios most of the time, or maybe any more than one or 2% of the time. And I feel like one to 2% of the time, like I'm actually, I don't hate that. Like, I kind of like those epic blowout moments. Those are the things you walk away from the table remembering. I I have it as an Instacut right now, but that's probably too far. So maybe I can be talked into one or two of these. Let me let me pon- let you ponder that for a second longer because there's a specific interaction I really want to talk about. Um, I found a beautiful 2005 deck uh, on Star City Games called um, Eradicate This, which is such a great like 2005 Magic deck name. Uh, so Eradicate This was a deck built around the realization that. If you target your animate and then target your opponent's lands with this, you can create the actual true ultimate feel bad moments for this. Uh, and so the way that this deck originally did this, which works in our cube, is with the Genju. So if you're not familiar, we're going to talk about one in just a second. But the Genju are one mana auras that animate specific types of basic lands. And so if you throw a Genju on this, on one of your opponent's lands, and then eradicate it, you can remove all of their basics of a certain type from their deck. Uh, even more relevant, uh, Soil Shaper. So Soil Shaper is a creature with a spirit craft trigger, meaning one of these, whenever you cast an instant and arcane spell triggers. Um, and Soil Shaper, whenever you cast an instant or arcane spell, animates target land, not target land you control, target land. And so uh, with Soil Shaper plus Eradicate, you can start... Uh, just uh, machine gunning down all of your opponent's basics and remove all of the lands from their deck. Uh, the actual deck that's linked in the Star City Games article lands on doing this with Life Spark Spell Bomb, which is a much more efficient way to do this using a Mirrodin card. Um, but I just love this as a kind of wacky, like against the odds standard deck from back in the day. That is pretty fun and would actually work in our environment. Could occasionally happen in our cube, which would be, uh, I think, really beautiful. <laughs> That would be pretty great, though. I feel like if with how long and grindy some of the games get, that could actually help your your opponent at least the first time. <laughs> like, they're not drawing dead. By the time you assemble it, you're right. They probably don't care. Yeah, you're just thinning the thinning the deck, or or maybe you use it on your own land, thin your own deck. Okay, I'm warming up to this. That is that is some serious five D chess there. The problem, of course, is the stupid non black claws, right? Because like the on color. <sighs> yeah. Thing, Genju of the Fens turns uh, the Enchanted Swamp into a black spirit, so utility's limited there. Yeah. Okay. okay I, I really I'm... hate this non-black clause. Like, I, I'm so glad that Wizards found other ways to limit black removal because I think it's good for black to have these limits, you know, but doing it with like I don't know, like eliminate, right? Where it's like mana value three or less. That feels so much more elegant to me, right? That's a that's like a meaningful limitation, causes interesting play patterns, whereas these black, non-black things, it's just like randomly your removal either does everything you need it to do or doesn't at all do what you need it to do. And I, I, even though I love this era of magic, I really am glad they found better solutions for that problem. Yeah. And I mean, I think we've really seen that there are many possible solutions, right? You can destroy target non-artifact creature, like go for the throat. You can do it based on total power and toughness, like cut down. Like there are a lot of interesting ways to do it that don't depend on something that's completely out of your control. Like what colors 
your opponent is in. Yeah, I, uh, I made a whole list for a, a later card, Hero's Demise. But yeah, there's lots and lots of other conditions that I think play way better than non-black. So I'm a playable 2x on this, which I, I admit is pretty aggressive. But I view this as really premium removal that uh, is also kind of fun and interesting. Uh, okay. Because of the, the Genju <laughs> Soil Shaper interactions, <laughs> I'm willing to come up from Instacut to a meh. You think we need two of them? I don't think we need two of them. I, I take issue with your meh. I could see cutting this on power level or something or on being kind of obnoxious, but come on, is this a meh? Like meh to me says like this is just right on the margin of even being worth including. And I like and I think on power level, this is above a meh. Yeah, this is making me feel like we need something between playable and meh because meh is like right on the edge of inclusion playable is like yeah this is good i i, I like that our rating system forces us to to make hard choices <sighs> okay all right okay see okay, see it just can... happened you saw, listen to that uh, pained sigh you made that's what i'm going for that's what i wanted to do i don't like the pain <laughs> okay okay we can we, we can should be reviewing the black cards in this block i <laughs> know <laughs> we're, we're talking about the wrong cards if we want to avoid pain we can call it playable. I'm, I'll just keep a, a mental footnote on this card just for myself and anyone out there who agrees with me. I'm, I'm actually fine with one because this feels like one we can tune up and down if we need a little more black removal. I actually like that it's a little more expensive too. Like feels like Kamigawa removal should be inefficient and I do worry Ren Flesh and Ren Spirit are almost a little too efficient. So maybe if those prove a little too easy to come by, we tune this up to, to two because this imposes more of a deck building cost, right? It's four mana and it's double black, whereas the other two are really splashable. In instance. Yeah, okay. All right. Playable one. It's a, a dial we can turn. Second footnote to this card. <laughs> okay, speaking of Genjus, we have another Genju of the Fens. Genju of the Fens is one black mana for an enchantment aura, Enchant Swamp. You can pay two colorless mana until end of turn. Enchanted Swamp becomes a 2 2 black spirit creature with B. This creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. It's still a land. When Enchanted Swamp is put into a graveyard, you may return Genju of the Fens, Fens from your graveyard. To your hand. Uh, we're working on Genju of the Fans. <laughs> but this one is a most obscure guy. unset card. <laughs> so, so we have another Genju here. This, of course, is a, a part of a five-color cycle, as pretty much all cycles were in Kamigawa. This one brings us another pretty tripophobic art piece, just like the Genju of the Plains. Is it Genju of the Plains? The white one? <laughs> no, it's not Genju of the Plains. Genju of the Fields, I think. Get you the fields. I like get you the plane. <laughs> Little on the nose. I get, I'm tired too. Okay, get you the field. So get you the feds is also tripophobic. Extremely. Extremely. Uh, but I actually like this this art quite a bit. I wasn't a big fan of the fields slash planes, but this Genju's got like a real like creepy, horrifying monster vibe that goes beyond just the tripophobia. And he's, you know, he's got more of a like distinctive, almost like Shadow of the Colossus kind of shape yeah. to him. Cool stuff. Yeah, I think this has the best art of any of the Genju. Uh, they're all good. You know, they're all like, except for Genju the Falls. That one's pretty lame. Um, but the rest of them are all like good, intense, kind of freaky spirit art in the Kamigawa vein. Most of the other ones go pretty hard towards abstract. It's like, is this a creature? Is this like a, 
an enchantment? Is this a sorcery? Like what's even going on here? This one is more of a traditional monster, but as a traditional monster, I mean, it is, it is scary. Like you got the tryptophobia, you got this kind of like looming menace. You got this sense that this thing's just sort of waking up and beginning to stretch its legs before it does some real damage. Like, I think this is, this is a pretty exceptional piece of art. It's really well, well done. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's even still dripping as he's emerging from the fens. Yeah, he is. He's got some great drip. Yeah, I don't have much to say on this. This is one of my favorite cycles from the block. I am never cutting any of these. That includes Genju of the Fen. So like, honestly, I don't I don't care if he's good or not. I think he is pretty good. I think all of these overperform. The Shade ability, I think, particularly has a tendency to overperform in this slow, grindy format where, you know, at the end of the day, something that can just boost itself in the late game and swing in every turn is... Uh, pretty relevant although it is a little painful here because you're guaranteed to put basically three mana since it has to enchant a land just to activate it so your ability to like really go big on the shade ability is kind of limited yeah a little bit i i do like that you know this is scalable in a way that the other genshu aren't you know if it really gets into a late grindy game genshu of the fens can bring it home yeah, it is the only one that isn't a meaningful body on its own, right? So like Genju of the Fields is a 2-5 with basically lifelink. Genju of the Falls is a 3-2 flyer. Genju of the Spires, the red one, is a 6-1. And Genju of the Cedars is just a big old 4-4. Like this one is just kind of a 2-2 on its own. So it, re- it requires more work from you, which the uh, the other ones don't. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a weaker, weaker early game play. Uh, still, rating-wise, uh, I think I'm going to auto-include on this. Like, I love this whole cycle. I don't want to cut any of them. But I think it's just a 1x. We don't we don't need multiples of this effect. Yeah, that, that works for me. All right, let's talk about a pretty iconic card, Goryo's Vengeance. Goryo's Vengeance is uh, 1 and a B for an instant arcane. Return target legendary creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. That creature gains haste. Exile it at the beginning of the next end step. And then splice onto arcane for 2 and a B. Uh, which as a reminder, I think this is our first splice card of the episode. As you cast an arcane spell, uh, you may reveal this card from your hand and pay its splice cost. If you do, add this card's effects to that spell. Okay, so one would be reanimate target legendary creature um, with haste, but it exiles at end of turn. Uh, This is a super cool card. It's one of the most iconic cards in the set for me. It's a two mana reanimate that's legal and modern at instant speed with haste. Uh, Of course, there is like a super (laughs) serious caveat here uh, and that it can only target legends. But despite that caveat, it's still good enough that it's seen pretty decent amount of modern play throughout its history, Um, most notably to power out uh, either Gristlebrand or Emrakul. Um, Emrakul, you may be wondering, how does that work? Because Emrakul shuffles back in. But of course, that's a trigger. And so you can respond to the trigger because this is an instant. Uh, And so this has the ability to bring back some of the most powerful relevant reanimation targets of all time. Uh, And so it's quite cool. Uh, It was also played a fair amount in block constructed, surprisingly, mostly to outvalue other gifts decks. So one of the big, probably the most uh, big and scary deck in Champions of Kamigawa block constructed was the gifts ungiven deck. That card is just obscenely powerful. And you could use this to outvalue the other gifts deck by repeatedly recurring uh, Kakusho the Evening Star. So every time Kakusho dies, of course, your opponent loses five life and you gain five life. It doesn't take a lot of death triggers off uh, Kakusho uh, in order to uh, win off Goryo's Vengeance. And it also saw play just as a way to construct kind of nasty gifts piles where you put this into a gifts pile along with a card called Soulless Revival, which is an arcane bell that gets back a creature from your graveyard. And then Hanakami, who's a creature who sacks to get an arcane 
card back in your graveyard. And so when you put all three of those into a gift pile, there's no combination that doesn't let you get back uh, the Vengeance or one of the creatures. Uh, so really cool card. Uh, there's even more to say about it. It's just a nifty, cool card. I don't think it has a lot of place in the queue. But before we get to that, Connor, what, what are your thoughts on Gorio's Vengeance? Yeah, I think this is a, a super cool card. Like you mentioned, it it does see play in modern with things like Emrakul and Gristlebrand and uh, now the new Atroxa uh, that was just printed oh. in All Will Be One. I was doing a little searching around to see like where Goryo's Vengeance has popped up in modern. Uh, and there's, you know, some some new YouTube videos and things that have popped up. Sadly, none from uh, Saffron Olive yet with Goryo's Vengeance and Atroxa using this to draw a million cards. I think that this card is a really cool example of an already interesting card becoming kind of even cooler as time passes, as more and more legendary card, legendary creatures get into the mix. Goryo's Vengeance gets more and more interesting. But sadly, I don't really see how this can be very relevant in the cube. There are obviously a lot of legendary creatures to target, but almost none of them really have relevant ETB triggers. And because Goryo's Vengeance causes them to be exiled at the end of the turn and not go back to the graveyard, you don't get death triggers off things like the spirit dragons. Right, unless you can sack them or cause them to die in combat because they only get exiled at end of turn. It's not if they would leave the battlefield. So if you can right. find some other way to get them into the graveyard, they they will end up in the yard, but uh, you got to put some work in. Yeah, and I I don't know how doable that is really going to be. I, I kind of want to try it. Like I, <laughs> I, I kind of want to have one of these in and just see if it does something somewhere that we're not seeing but it, it is pretty hard to see yeah i mean i'm open to trying to throw one in i just i don't think it's going to do a lot unfortunately the cube does have a decent amount of legends so uh 102 out of our 100 352 creatures are uh legendary so that's you know just under a third which is a pretty respectable share that said as you said like i just don't know how many of them are that meaningful to get back for a single turn like how many of them are worth card to get back? The other element, of course, here is the uh, the splice onto arcane. That feels to me largely like flavor text, to be honest. Uh, obviously, in like cards outside of a Kamigawa environment, that literally does nothing. It's kind of like through the breach, where it just adds confusion for new players. Even here, uh, I don't know how many times you're going to really be repeatedly splicing uh, with Goryo's Vengeance, and you have a legendary card in your graveyard worth targeting. That seems like that uh, seems like a tall order to me. Yeah, yeah, I think especially having the legendary card in the graveyard because they're just, uh, I mean, especially with slower games, like there just aren't that many cards in the graveyard a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, there there isn't a lot of milling that goes on. There isn't a lot of, uh, you know, like surveilling or, or other effects that move things out of your library into the graveyard. So there isn't that way within Kamigawa to get a lot of things into the graveyard that you could target with Goryo's Vengeance. They're probably going to either be discarded or die to get in there yeah it's kind of a recurring theme in this block we'll we'll come back to this i think with hirobi's whisper and a few cards of like kamigawa almost has a strong graveyard theme but not quite right like there's a soul shift thing going on with a lot of the spirits there's a handful of other things that like put things in the yard or suggest a graveyard theme but we're not quite at the like modern like Innistrad or even Odyssey block thing of like lots and lots of things interacting with your graveyard and using your graveyard as a resource and recurring things that like there's just little hints of it. There's not quite enough to um like make it into a true theme in the block, particularly at the in kind of a limited or cube environment. For sure. 
Uh, one more question before we get to rating this thing. So normally I prefer kind of OG Kamigawa art uh, in the rare case of a Kamigawa card that's been reprinted with new art. Um, but this card, I kind of like the modern art or the newer art that it received in Ultimate Masters, which is kind of a freaky purple guy with extra um, clawed arms. Like it's, I don't know, like this, this current one is almost too goofy for me. It doesn't have the much horror to it. It's just like, I don't know, like a Saturday morning cartoon. So I'm not a huge fan of this art. I like the newer art a little better, although I don't think either of them are amazing. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one. I do not like the new art on this. Why? It just looks like some, like some, purple guy who i guess has big like claw hands yeah that's a fair point <laughs> nothing nothing about that art feels kamigawa to me it, nothing about it feels arcane there's bamboo connor yeah i guess he's in the same <laughs> swamps but like the it's the wrong kind of spirit for me right like the kamigawa spirits even the oni which i think this is supposed to be based on the the three eyes of the creature you know they're supposed to be really freaky and unusual and the spirit in the new Goryo's Vengeance is like basically just a translucent human. That's that's not interesting to me. All right, I'm somewhat persuaded by that. The other thing I'll say in the, the original Goryo's Vengeance art is that it gets across this idea of like a sort of temporary rush. It's clear that this thing is going all out attacking and also may not be around for long. So all it's right. coming at you. Yeah, it's coming at you. Aesthetically, I think I still like the Ultimate Masters one, but I agree the original is more effective. All right, I'll, I'll take that. All right, what's your rating on this? I have it at a meh 1x. I mean, definitely no more than one copy of this, but I, I do just kind of want to see if maybe there's some potential there. Yeah, I have it as an Instacut. I, I'm fine with meh or like maybe a build around. I don't know that anyone's going to bother. I feel like if this is a build around, you would need two. Hold on. I'm kind of I'm scrolling through the rest of the cards we have to talk about today, and I'm seeing more mez and playables than i was expecting <laughs> so maybe we yeah, do the playables are coming up <laughs> thanks for anyone who stuck with us the good cards are coming <laughs> now that we're halfway coming up on the halfway point of reviewing these cards it may be time to crack down a little bit cut the things that just won't do anything all right instacut instacut that's a sad one let's move on okay let's move on to a card that uh also sometimes won't do anything hero's demise 1b for an instant destroy target legendary creature and i'll read the great flavor text what will it say on our graves lord conda will it say we led our world to conquer immortal forces or that we were crushed by our own arrogance at each defeat i wonder sensei hisoka letter to lord conda bang and flavor text the card i think is a little complicated <laughs> so based on some very rough math looking at like all the creatures that we have in the cube as it stands right now. So including duplicates, including creatures that we've cut out of Kamigawa block. So, you know, looking at our cube as it stands, as opposed to the block as a whole, I think that this hits something like 15 to 30% of creatures in the cube, depending on which color you're looking at. Oof. So that's, that's not great, but the rate on this is so much more efficient than every other removal spell in Kamigawa that I kind of think that this is maybe worth trying. Oh man. I, I went back and forth on this a bunch. I, I had it as a meh, I've had it as an instacut. I keep I keep vacillating. I think that hit rate is is pretty bad. It's pretty low. It's pretty low, but I guess it does hit not all, but many of the things you care about most, notably the spirit dragons, right? Although they are getting destroyed, so you're still getting hit with the death trick. Um, it hits Maloku. Uh, it hits a lot of the like biggest, most dangerous cards in the cube. So that is good. That said, I think there's a lot of games where you won't have any target. 
Like you'll, this is just going to sit and rot in your hand. You know, it's amazing that it has this two mana efficiency that's kind of unheard of in Kamigawa, but it's going to be a lot of just straight up misses for this thing. It's just going to, it's just going to cost you a card. This, this really does highlight again, I promise I'll, I'll stop harping on like the efficiency of modern removal compared to these cards, but you compare this to something like Infernal Grasp, which just kills anything at a cost of two life. And this <laughs> looks pretty rough. Maybe, maybe this is a, a red flag for, for myself. Like, this is maybe an interesting sideboard card. Yeah, like your opponent's got a dragon and you just want one extra bit of uh, gas against it. Yeah, or, you know, if they're like, uh, if they've put together uh, a samurai deck or they're running Maloku or something, you know, maybe you have Hero's Demise in your sideboard and you're happy to bring that in for game two. At the same time, I wonder if, you know, if I'm like fighting for this card so that it can show up in a sideboard, uh, that's probably not, not the best reason to include it. Yeah, it does. What it does do is add some texture to the environment. You know, it adds kind of a unique, specific effect that requires that you evaluate on its own. And I think there's something to be said for that. Okay. I also like the flavor text here, as you said, quite a lot. I don't normally like this kind of pretty heavy handed flavor text, but I think it works here, A, because it sort of voices what we're all thinking that like, hey, starting a war against the literal gods seems like a pretty bad idea. And B, I like that it sort of matches the mood of the art, which like is super dark and intense. It's this Kitsune being enveloped by this extreme kind of black cloud doesn't do it justice. It's almost like a black kind of serpent of ash smoke. I don't know how to characterize it. It's really worth looking at, Uh, but it matches that mood, right? This kind of inevitability, this sense of constriction, the sense of like things are just going to get worse and worse, but it's also not just describing what happens in the art in the way a lot of flavor text does. So I like that pairing between the art and flavor text here quite a lot. Yeah. I kind of wonder if that's supposed to be Sensei Golden Tail. I wondered that too, in which case it makes me sad. I know it. He's the only legendary Kitsune, as far as I could tell, that uh, dual wields. So I think it's him. That's too bad. Yeah, it, it is too bad. Um, one thing before we, more thing before we got to rating, I was sort of instinctively surprised at how little EDH play this sees. It's only in about a thousand decks on EDH rec. But then I started thinking about it more and like, and the reason I was surprised, of course, it's like, oh, legendary creature, like EDH is about legendary creatures. Why doesn't this see more play? But then I thought about what like black actually has is one B removal today. Um, and it's not just like uh, terror or even Doomblade anymore, right? We've got go for the throat, cast down, feed the swarm, heartless act, infernal grasp, power word kill, ultimate price on and on like this card is clearly outclassed, so I see why it doesn't see much play. And I still kind of like it as like a commander flavor win. Like you have a card that just kills any commander. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I went through the, the exact same thought process of like, why, why is this not in EDH? Because yeah, it is cool. It's just like it could say kill target commander. Yeah, it it, it does, which I think is kind of cool, um, especially with this cool art. So I was an Instacut. I think you've talked me up though, Connor. So tell me where you've talked me up to. So I mean, I, I don't think I can really give this more than a meh, especially if, if we're thinking of it as a sideboard, maybe board kind of card, then uh, no, more, no more than one. I can live with meh 1x here. All right, let's talk about our first flip card of the episode. Hired Muscle is 1BB uh, for a human warrior, 2-2. Two, two. Whenever you cast a spirit or arcane spell, you may put a key counter on it. And at the beginning of the end step, if there are two or more key counters on Hired Muscle, you may flip it. Oh, and it flips into Scarmaker, a legendary spirit. 4-4, four, four. remove a key counter from Scarmaker. Target creature gains fear until end of turn. Whew. Okay, so 
One BB two two gets a key counter whenever you spirit craft two or more. You can flip it at the end of any turn into a four four fear giving spirit. I don't know. I think this is pretty pretty cool. All of these key counter cards I find a little bit tough to evaluate. Uh, Spiritcraft is one of those things when you read it. Spiritcraft is the kind of colloquial name for this whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell thing. When you read that, it sounds, oh yeah, I do that all the time. This is Kami Gobble. It's about spirits. You know, I must do that all the time. But in play, it's actually a little bit harder to get Spiritcraft triggers than you would think. And of course, the pre-flip state of this is pretty bad. It's a 1BB2-2. Uh, it doesn't get a whole lot worse for 1BB than just a straight up 2-2 with no meaningful abilities. Um, But the backside here is like, very meaningful, right? It's like a 4-4, four, four, which in Kamigawa is a chunky, chunky boy. 4-4 four, four means this guy trades with or kills 324 out of the 352 creatures in our cube. So 92% of the cube wow. dies in combat to this thing. So just on its own, I'm kind of into it. Like a three mana that can become a 4-4, four, four, I'm into that. And then you add the fear and like, this guy's a beater. This this thing is, ends game. So I don't know, I'm kind of high on, uh, on the hired muscle slash scar maker. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right that these these key counter flip cards are pretty tough to think about in a vacuum. You know, we probably do just need more kind of testing of them to see if, like, how often that ability becomes relevant. You know, Scarmaker really is a beater, but you do have to reach those two key counters to be able to flip it. But I do think the 4-4 four, four with evasion and being able to give evasion to other creatures unless you're up against a black deck because it's fear you know that is that is a real thing yeah speaking of being up against a black deck or not if you manage to get into what i'm increasingly thinking is a mono black deck in the cube uh you know like the wicked akuba deck like i feel like this is a pretty good basically curve topper right it's like you go wicked akuba on two hired muscle on three removal spell on four like i you're getting in for some serious serious damage um from there so I, i like this as kind of a big beater in the uh, black heavy deck yeah uh, we we're kind of seeing some some mono black staples emerging here i don't know if i'll quite give hired muscle that honor but you know genju defends another solid part of that deck if that's a thing that's coming together so yeah and i think we've seen that deck like in playtesting we've seen the kind of really black heavy kind of somewhere between aggro and mid-range right like it's not a bunch of one and two drops like the white deck occasionally can be but it's like a, it's a bunch of twos and threes and it just presents a clock that your opponent might struggle to deal with in a dirtly format like this. One little uh, complaint about this guy, uh, someone named Jay Wolps on Gatherer notes that this card is called Hired Muscle, but its type is Human Warrior and that it should be a mercenary. And like Jay Wolps is totally right. Like this is literally Hired Muscle. Of all cards, this should be a mercenary. <laughs> the, the, the card name is basically a description of a card type it should be. Yeah, no, that's totally right. Yeah. Rating-wise, I have this in a mad 2x. Um, I'm mad because I'm just not bought in that these key counter cards quite get there. Um, but I'm 2x because I feel like this can sort of help create a deck by existing in a little higher quantity. Like, it helps create this kind of mid-top end for a black uh, aggro deck. Yeah, I had it at playable 1x, but I kind of like mad 2x better. So we have, I think, two copies of the the blue key counter flip card in, mm-hmm. which like basically flips into a like soft counter on a stick so yeah i kind of i kind of like the idea of pushing this a little bit more but with a rating that is less certain than playable all right that sounds good to me and the other one other thing that's occurring to me just as you're talking about that is we we didn't really talk a lot about the fear thing and the removing a key counter but 
I like the way this guy plays with other creatures is interesting, right? Because it's not just that he can get himself through for four damage. It's that as a four, four, he might be able to crash in on his own and then help some two, two like thief of hope get in for those final points of damage. So I like the way this potentially powers up your whole team for like a final alpha strike. Yeah, this does have a lot more finisher potential than at least based on the ability than the other two cards in this cycle we've looked at so far, like it can actually punch through and end the game. So before we we finish up with Hired Muscle Scar Maker, I got to ask, what do you think of Scar Maker's art? I don't care about the Hired Muscle side. That's just some guy. But <laughs> what about what about Scar Maker? Um uh, What about Scar Maker? Boy. Well, so I guess we should try to describe it. So these flip cards for anyone who hasn't seen one, it's worth looking them up. They are not transform cards, which is what you might be picturing. They're not two faces to this card. There's just one face with a picture in the middle, a tiny, tiny picture that has two individual pictures within it, uh, which can be a little bit awkward. So as you said, the um, Iron Muscle is just like a guy. It's just like a, he kind of looks like a bad guy in like a beat him up, like a Ninja Gaiden game. He looks like someone you kill in a Ninja Gaiden game by the dozen. Yeah. Just like an unnamed enemy. Yeah. And then he flips into, I don't know how to describe it. Kind of like a, I can't think of a better way to describe it than basically like what a, a cut rate evil voodoo bad guy would look like maybe also in a Ninja Gaiden game. Like he's <laughs> just like a big, big muscly dumb guy with a red X on his face. I, I don't mind him, but I'm not impressed by it either. I'm, I'm kind of in love with him. I love this. <laughs> he's, he's giving he's like so strong, small? he's giving strong cryptid energy to me. Like Scarmaker looks like sort of an an artist's rendition of like a cryptid I would have read about on Wikipedia in like 2007. Or like an SCP. He's like an SCP yes. project guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah I see like, it. You know, he's not super clearly defined. Maybe he's walking out of the mist because he lives in the Himalayas. Or maybe he is just these two giant arms and a red voodoo face. <laughs> right. Oh, he's got teeth and stuff. Yeah, he's got teeth. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to sell him short. Yeah, you just don't know. You know, he's a he's a mystery. So I, he's got these sloth claws. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, I'm kind of into it. I'm kind of into it. Okay, that's that's all. You don't have to come around on the art. I mean, I don't mind the art. I just find it kind of it does doesn't do a lot for me either way. All right. Well, let's move on to another uh, card that I think will have some legs in mono black. Hirobi's Whisper, one BB for an instant arcane. If you control a swamp, destroy target non-black creature, and you can splice onto Arcane by exiling four cards in your graveyard. So I got to start by saying that it's so much harder to evaluate this kind of conditional removal. And really, this is like double conditional removal because you need to control a swamp and you can only target a non-black creature. But that second condition, especially targeting Destroying target non-black creature was like so much more common on black removal spells back in this time. Almost ubiquitous as we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we've we've already kind of been over and over today, so I won't get too much into it, but it's it's frustrating here and makes it a little bit hard to evaluate. But I think that the controlling a swamp is not gonna be really a condition at all for this card. Like we don't have that much non-swamp mana fixing that's gonna enable someone to play Hirobi's Whisper. If if you're running this, you're almost always going to have a swamp, uh, though the double designated is also kind of a problem. I have complicated feelings about this card. I do too. There's just a lot to evaluate, right? There's like a, a lot of bells and whistles going on here. I, I'm with you that the if you control a swamp here is like whatever. 
I, I assume that's there so that you can't... Okay, I think I just realized. I think that's there so you can't run this in a non-black deck, right? Because you could theoretically put this in like a... Right, because you can splice uh, it. Splice it with no mana cost. So I get why it's there, but if we just take as red that you're probably in a black deck, yeah, it's totally fair and reasonable. Or you can kind of ignore that text, I guess. <sighs> I don't even know how to talk about the playability, so let me go to the art and then we can come back to playability. I love this art. This is one of my favorite pieces of art in the block. And the thing I like about it, there's a couple things. One is that it's extremely technically well-rendered. So the art, uh, if you're not looking at it, is a dying person laying on the ground with their chest exposed and their rib cage sort of visible through their skin in a way that's pretty ambiguous. It's not clear if their skin is translucent or their skin is gone or, you know, we're just seeing inside them. It's hard to tell. And they're surrounded by these tiny creeping little pink translucent spirits that are obviously part of whatever mischief is uh, killing this person. And what I like about it is it's technically well rendered. The colors are super interesting. It's all like greens and blues and pinks. It's subtly horrific in a way that fits really well with the name. Like it's, this isn't like a doom blade. This isn't like somebody being struck down by some gross act, like intense act of magic. It's a whisper. It's a subtle sort of killing. And I think that comes through really well in the art here. I think this is just a, a grade A piece. Yeah. And you, like, it looks like you can see their soul or something kind of coming out of their chest. Yeah. And there's a lot of ambiguity here, right? Like what is going on exactly? It, it's hard to tell. The splice cost is interesting and tough to evaluate here. Like remove four cards in your graveyard. My initial instinct was, oh gosh, is this too powerful? You know, like, is it going to be too easy to do that? I don't think so. As we talked about with a couple other cards, it's not easy to just dump cards in your graveyard in this format. Um, so I think realistically you're, you're splicing this once. Maybe very occasionally you splice this twice and you give yourself a huge pat on the back. I don't think it's oppressive by any means. I don't think it's worrisome. It's not like a dismember kind of effect where you don't really need to do anything to enable hard removal if you manage to splice this a couple times or even just once like yeah you know you deserve it yeah you put in the work so what, what does all that work out to i don't know it's still it's still complicated i have this at, at playable one x because even as a, a three mana spell it's like it's pretty decent removal by kamigawa standards and the splicing is a nice upside but at the same time, it can't just, you know, do nothing. But you could also say that about Ren Spirit and Ren Flesh, which are kind of the, the banner three mana removal spells that Black has, which can't just do nothing if you don't have the right thing to target. I like a playable and I like a 1x, I think. One thing I like about this is it's harder for other colors to move in on. One of the problems for the Black Drafter is that Ren Spirit and Ren Flesh are so good that basically everybody should try to pick them up and splash into Black for it. And that's not true of Hirobi's Whisper. This really demands you commit. Yeah, I like that. Playable 1x? Yeah, that sounds like a good starting point. All right, let's go to an actually iconic card, a card that probably most of you have heard of, Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni. Ink Eyes, Servant of Oni is 4BB for a 5-4 legendary rat ninja with ninjutsu 3BB. Whenever Ink Eyes deals combat damage to a player, you may put target creature card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. And 1B, regenerate ink eyes Whew. all right this is a truly actually iconic card 
this card I think is beloved on so many levels and in so many formats. Um, the way I know her best is actually is like an MTGO Vintage Cube meme. Uh, this card was in the MTGO Vintage Cube for an inexplicably long time. I remember watching tons and tons of YouTubers who'd say, see it in pack one or pack two and go, okay, this is my Ink Eyes stipulation draft. I'm going to try to draft around this card and get it into um, a deck. It's never that good in that context, but the fact that it's not totally embarrassing to play with in a Vintage Cube context says a lot for it. And I think it's uh, it's like a casual all-star. It was an all-star back in the day. I remember people loving this card and wanting to build around it. That's an EDH all-star. Uh, it appears in, I think, 15,000 decks. Is that right, Connor? Yeah, well, well, interestingly, it appears in 15,000 decks. Amazingly, she only commands 150. Yeah, let, let's focus on the 15,000, though. <laughs> All right, yeah, we'll go with the big number. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it should, sees play in basically every Rat Commander deck and every Ninja deck. And while those aren't like... You know, those aren't on the level of like an artifact deck or something. Those are like really popular sub archetypes in EDH. And I think ninjas are popular. Yeah, I think everybody runs her. She's super cool. I think I think Ink Eyes within Kamigawa is like a spirit dragon level bomb on power level. And and speaking of well loved at the time it was printed, this was actually the pre-release card for Betrayers of Kamigawa. So, you know, everyone that showed up to a pre-release, including both mm-hmm. of us back in 2004, had a copy of this card. So it was, you know, very much in the, I guess, public mind when it came to Betrayers of Kamigawa. And I think is a, kind of a perfect representation of what this set specifically is about, which is... Yeah, and I think they nailed it on uh, with that choice. Like, not just that it's a ninja, but that it's such a unique uh, effect, that it's powerful, that it's got a kind of Timmy splash quality, but it's also not a competitive embarrassment. Um, like, I think they really nailed it with this thing. I will say, and I worry about saying this because I, I think it's an unpopular opinion, I don't really like this art, and I never have. I don't like the um, kind of fan service TNA of her rat cleavage and big rat butt and tiny rat waist. Uh, The proportions are all wacky. There's a ton of crazy foreshortening going on with her arms. Um, The like motion and physics of her weapons don't make a lot of sense to me. There's no sense of like, what is she doing? How is she balanced like this? What was the previous motion she made? What is the next motion she made? Like, I I think this art is kind of technically well-realized, but it's a, it's a big miss for me on the character. I'm not a fan of this, this style. Yeah, I don't mind the art. Uh, the honestly, the only thing that bothers me is the the weapons. Like there, there is some real perspective weirdness happening. Like the, the sword, and I guess her left hand is five feet tall. The, the <laughs> angle doesn't quite look right. Um, it's real big. The chain flail thing coming out of the end of the other weapon is moving in a way that kind of makes no sense. But yeah, other than that, I have no objection to ink eyes. Well, I don't love the art. I do love the name here. I think Ink Eyes Servant of Oni is just an objectively cool name. I like the missing the, like it's not Servant of the Oni, it's Servant of like a specific Oni, or perhaps this is like the Japanese plural, which doesn't take an article. I'm not not quite sure. Yeah, I'd kind of always thought of it as plural Oni, like just all the Oni. That's what I thought. But actually, there's a story called A Servant's Mission, which I'll link, that told the story of how she came to betray her ogre master and serve specifically Kuro Pitlord uh, from Champions, uh, which is which is a cool story. I recommend uh, looking it up for the story folks. So maybe she is a servant of one specific uh, Oni, Kuro. That would also be a cool name. It's funny. Whenever we get to these really iconic cards, I'm just like, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's powerful. <laughs> Put it in the cube. Like, I, there's not a lot more to say. <laughs> no, it's it's hard. Yeah, like every everybody loves it, and so do we. I w- I will say, like I I mentioned, he, she's a spirit dragon level bomb. I think that is true in yeah 
our cube, I, I love that she forces this really tough decision on the opponent, assuming that she's not ninja in. You really don't want to face tank this much damage and this effect if you have really anything decent in your graveyard. But the fact that she regenerates makes her really frustrating a and difficult to deal with as a 5-4 blocking. Like, how are you getting rid of ink eyes? She, she doesn't even get got by Hero's Demise, which... Uh, doesn't have that funny little clause that a lot of old removal spells had of the creature can't be regenerated. So Ink Eyes gets through a lot of removal, including Ren Flesh. Uh, she trades with almost every other creature in the block and then survives it because she regenerates like really, really hard to deal with. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It's not quite, I mean, I'm, we're certainly not cutting her. I don't think she's probably at the level of like, like Maloku, I think is an iconic card that we might end up cutting because it is so unbelievably oppressive. I don't think Ink Eyes is quite at that level. I don't think she's that far off though. She is a 5-4 regenerator who can sneak in and who, if she connects even once, pretty much ends the game. So we might have to keep an eye on her, which will be tough because she's a ninja. So she might just kind of slip past our vision. We, we might lose her in the shuffle. All right. Auto-include, right? Yeah. Auto-include, I guess, on a potential watch list. Okay, we've got another legend coming up, uh, this time on the spirit side. Kiyoki Sanity's Eclipse, another amazing name. 4BB for a 6-4 legendary demon spirit. Whenever you cast a spirit or arcane spell, target opponent exiles a card from their hand. And then the flavor text says, Kiyoki, eater of minds, corrupter of thoughts, bringer of madness, lord of fear, return by our blood and walk again. Ogre chant. Little, little on the nose, <laughs> but also kind of cool, I guess. So I feel like Kiyoki, unlike Ink Eyes, is probably bringing a little too little too late. This exile a card spirit craft trigger, I think most of the time is just not going to matter that much when you're on turn six or later. Yeah, well, it's later, right? Because you're not triggering, presumably, the turn you play. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to trigger the same same turn and this isn't even you know you don't even get to choose what you're exiling it your opponent just chooses what to exile when you trigger this this effect so you're not even you know getting like a duress style effect out of kiyoki your opponent is just choosing to exile probably a land if they have anything in their hand at this point <laughs> that's exactly what i was gonna say they're probably holding a land and a spell and they exile the land <laughs> right right they've got a land and a Thousand talent strike or hundred talent strike, and um, I don't, I don't think the effect is really doing much of anything. So I guess that just leaves him as a craw worm. Yeah. Well, I think one thing is I feel bad for Kyoki coming after Ink Eyes. Like same casting cost four BB. That is tough. It's a tough act to follow, and I don't think Kyoki uh, manages to stick the landing. But like you're saying, like I don't know, craw worm is not <laughs> is not terrible in this environment. It's not great, but it's not totally embarrassing. The effect is, I think, unlikely to matter much. The card I kept thinking about is Honden of Night's Reach, uh, which is 3B uh, enchantment at the beginning of your upkeep. Uh, opponent discards a card for each uh, shrine you control. So if you have just the Night's Reach, it's uh, one card a turn. Uh, and the thing I notice whenever I try to play with Honden of Night's Reach is that it like never matters. Uh, and that gets to come down on four and it's guaranteed to trigger every turn. And so like if I'm struggling to make that card have an impact, I feel like Kyoki's like, Discardy ability here is just not gonna not gonna do it ninety percent of the time. Yeah, it doesn't even have the inevitability of the Honden, right? Like you need to you need to trigger this. And as we've discussed, like these spirit craft triggers kind of tend to come up 
less often than you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, okay, so here's one cute thing you can do with it is you can trigger this at instant speeds. You can do it in the draw step, kind of like a Vendillion click, you know, the old Vendillion click trick. If you flash it in a draw step and take away the thing, if it's meaningful, you know, you can, if you have an instant arcane, mm. you know, you, mm-hmm. you can deny them their draw. That would be cool. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it guess would be it cool. Could. Right. Right. I guess you could. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get to the rating on this, I do really like the art. I'm not a huge fan of this artist, uh, Paolo Parente, who does kind of a, like a very comic booky style, like thick lines, high contrast. I don't really like that much in Magic Art, but I think it really works here. Um, this is like definitely a horror themed card. It looks like uh, something from a Junji Ito manga. And honestly, it totally works for me. It's super freaky. Uh, the comic book thing elevates it rather than detracts. He's got all these kind of fleshy spires on his body that are emitting black smoke that sort of frames the whole art. Like he definitely has a sort of intense cosmic horror kind of feel. Yeah. Yeah. I like how kind of huge and he's, he's shapeless, but at the same time, you can clearly tell he's sort of made up of a bunch of arms. Like there is, and there is a real sense arms of kind of become madness faces like, one of his sets of arms is like has eyes and fingers that are also teeth. Uh, and then he has a face that's not his real face. He's got oh, another yeah. face. And then one of his ho- his horn talon, his horns also kind of have faces. Yeah, it's kind of got a, it's very kind of almost Lovecraftian, right? It's like a, it's like a Japanese Lovecraftian monster. Which, which is perfect for a card called Sanity's Eclipse. Paolo nailed it. Yeah. I, I will say for me, almost every Paolo Parente card in Kamigawa block is does have pretty awesome art so I don't think Kiyoki is I'll give you that I don't I don't really like his art across the board like if I go back to his older art like say from Onslaught era it's comic booky in this kind of cartoonish way I don't really like I'm just not a fan of that particular period of magic art but if I look at his art from the block yeah it pretty much all sings he did some real uh real cool stuff like uh Adamaro first to desire Godo bandit warlord uh, 100 Talent Kami, like lots of these pieces I, I really like. Go Paolo. Uh, what's your rating on this? I have him at, at meh 1x, but I almost I almost wonder if he even deserves to be in because I think he usually just ends up being a craw worm. <laughs> I mean, that's fine, but it's just so unexciting. Yeah, I struggled with this one too. So I, I think we one thing we're a little better off on, like we talked about in blue or in some of the other colors like how much room do we really have for like six drops say six plus drops black is not quite as overly congested in that slot like we just cut crawling filth obviously we're keeping ink eyes and we've kept kokusho like we've only got four or five there's only five total black six drops so if we cut crawling filth this leaves us with four and i'm kind of okay maybe keeping kyoki in as the worst of the four maybe he gets cut eventually but i think he can squeak by at a meh yeah. No. Okay. Okay. I can live with that. We'll keep him in at least on the strength of the art for now. Okay. All right. Meh one X for now. Okay. We talked about an Oni. Now let's talk about the mark of the Oni. Mark of the Oni is two and a B for an enchantment aura. Enchant creature. You control enchanted creature. At the beginning of the end step, if you control no demons, sacrifice mark of the Oni. And then the flavor text. As more Oni walked Kamigawa, more darkness infested its inhabitants' souls. The history of Kamigawa. So this card is super interesting as one of only two black control magic effects in the entire game. The other one is Enslave, from uh, originally from Planar Chaos, which is a whole set that's about messing with the color pie. 
you know, apart from that set, which is specifically about messing with the color pie, this is it. This is the only thing black spell in the entire game that lets you take control of an opponent's uh, creature. That was interesting to me because I guess I sort of intellectually knew that, but I'd never really thought about that. And if you just think like thematically, you step back from the mechanics of the color pie, stealing opponent's creatures sounds like kind of a black effect, right? Like black is all about betrayal and evil and doing kind of morally questionable things for your own advancement. So it's interesting that they wizards has barely even flirted with doing this effect. That setting that aside, like this card, I don't know. I think it's just terrible, right? Like I really want the demon thing to be like a thing in our cube. It's not a thing. There are only eight out of 124 black cards in our cube are demons. Many of those are bad cards that we just haven't cut yet. I, I don't think there's a level at which we could distort the cube that res would result in Mark of the Oni ever making it into a deck, let alone being cast and having a lasting impact on the game, which is sad because this is a really unique effect and I want it to be here. I just, I just don't see it. I ran this in my main deck in I think the last test draft that we did and got pretty seriously burned by it in every game but one where I held it and I held it and I held it and then finally managed to get it out the turn after I played Seizen, who's like my favorite demon, uh, this big legendary creature that forces a bunch of card draw and life loss. But at that point, like if I played Seizen and he's sticking on the board, like the game's probably just about over and I don't need the Mark of the Oni to clinch it. Either either if you have the, the demon, this is probably just win more. If you don't, this is basically do nothing yeah i think that's such a good point because like this card does have the ability to to make an impact but as you're saying like if if you control a demon for multiple turns most of the demons are good enough that you probably don't need mark of the only <laughs> it bums me out a little bit because this is a this is a fun card like i this sees some marginal amount of edh play in like demon tribal decks i assume it must have seen a ton of play in like 60 card casual decks back in the day i hope it did because it's a cool unique effect yeah it's not good enough for a cube it, we just i think the numbers just don't work yeah one final weird observation about like Kamigawa as a whole here is like this is a pretty strong theme in black throughout this set, and yet I just don't feel like the, the set is designed to support it. Like there are tons and tons of black cards, not tons, there's a decent number of black cards that care about this controlling demons or controlling ogres, but there's just not enough density for it to work. Yeah, it is this this weird, like very, very spare sub theme running through black where there like there just isn't quite enough to make it, you know, a, a lot of the quote-unquote payoffs of having a demon-ogre synergy are to just not have the painful drawback of whatever the card is. The upside is to not have the downside. There's no real, like, benefit that you get. There's no real, like, actual upside that you get to having the synergy. It's just avoiding the downside and getting, like, guess a fine card out of it. Yeah, that's you know, I feel like this card, you know, maybe, for example, if you couldn't cast it or sacrificed when you play it, if you don't control a demon, you know, so it forces having a demon initially, but then it just sticks around. I think this card would be a lot more interesting. It'd still be bad, but I think it'd be, it'd be less susceptible to these brutal blowouts. Yeah. All right. I'm just an instacut on this thing. Yep. Let's blow it out of the cube. All right. All right. We've got another one drop coming up here. Nizumi Shadow Watcher. One black mana for a 1-1 one, one rat warrior. You can sacrifice... Nizumi Shadow Watcher to destroy target ninja. And then the flavor text says, The Okiba Gang, night-cursed thieves and assassins, I've had enough of their meddling. Triple the guard, Maronar. So a little little rat politics going on. <laughs> but boy, this, this makes Bile Urchin look meta. <laughs> Sacrifice to destroy target ninja is pretty, 
talk about conditional removal. This is pretty rough. Yeah, this is an incredibly specific card. It makes me wonder, like, why does this card exist? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really feel like it's satisfying a particularly important story beat. It doesn't feel like the ninjas, to me, were so good that they needed a tool to deal with them in limited, let alone mm-hmm. constructed. Like, I, I don't know. It's just hard to imagine this card has ever really done anything anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It It is a weird one. It's It's almost like a... You know, it's been a very long time since I played Yu-Gi-Oh in any meaningful way, but it feels like an almost Yu-Gi-Oh like. <laughs> it does this, feel like this, one of those early Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Yeah, just super specific. You know, this isn't quite getting to the point of like naming the one card that this interacts with, but it's pretty specific. Considering how few ninjas there are in this block, it's not far off from that. It could almost list the like sixteen valid targets. <laughs> right. I don't, I'm not sure there's even that many. There are. Eight. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Eight ninjas in the block. So this could li- this could literally just list all eight ninjas, which would be pretty funny. Yeah, they'd, they'd all fit on there. But then we'd lose this uh, this fascinating flavor text. Yeah, I kind of like the flavor text. It made me go look up the Okiba gang. And I was like, oh my God, the Okiba gang survived into Neon Dynasty. Like, I think I knew that, right? Because of Okiba gang, um, Reckoner and stuff. But I hadn't really uh, internalized it. And then when I saw that, it made me, it made me smile to think through all the changes Kamigawa has gone through. Uh, apparently, this uh, this gang survived, which must cause Maronar great consternation. <laughs> he's he's still around. He's still mad at them. <laughs> it is kind of funny that you mentioned the Okiba gang surviving into Neon Dynasty, though. When I saw your note, I also looked for like Okiba cards or Reckoner cards because I think those are supposed to be the same thing. And funnily enough, none of those cards really have anything to do with ninjas. So I guess that the Shadow Watcher here did his job very well. He got rid of all of the the ninjas in the Okiba gang. Hmm. Well, yeah, interesting. Maybe his job wasn't to eliminate all ninjas. It's just to kind of purify the Okiba gang, get them to give up their kind of perfidious ninja ways in favor of a more honest criminality. Yeah, yeah. Stop sneaking around. Well done, Shadow Watcher. Your watch can end. And I think, I think it could end in the cube, too. <laughs> That's exactly the weak joke I was going to make. Yeah, Instacut, right? <laughs> oh, yoinked it. Instacut. All right. One more card. Our final card for this episode is Ogre Marauder. Ogre Marauder is 1BB for a 3-1 Ogre Warrior. Whenever Ogre Marauder attacks, it gains. Ogre Marauder can't be blocked until end of turn unless defending player sacrifices a creature. And a flavor text? Once freed, the Oni demanded more and more sacrifices to appease them. The ogres happily obliged. Uh, So before I get into the details, I just want to observe that confusing text I read. So the text I read is, whenever this attacks, it gains, this can't be blocked. That's an ability it gains until end of turn, unless defending player sacrifices a creature. That's some weird templating. The original text is a little more straightforward. Whenever Ogre Marauder attacks, it can't be blocked this turn unless defending player sacrifices a creature. Let's say that aside though, because I don't really know why that exists. As a card in our cube, I love this Ogre Marauder. Um, I like him as a great kind of top end, sort of like what we talked about for uh, Hired Muscle, but less speculative for what the uh, Wicked Akuba like aggro black drop black deck wants to do like three power is a clock in this format it is a very meaningful clock and your opponent is not guaranteed a profitable block here after sacking creature it's very likely that they're going to have to give you a two for one off the marauder and if he does that he's done his job and if he gets in for three every turn he's also done his job um you put ogun naginata or some other form of equipment on him he gets really really scary like i like this thing a lot i think this is just a very real threat 
Yeah, totally agree. I think it's also worth mentioning, and I'm not sure if we've really talked about this, at least in the kind of Kamigawa settings, but there really aren't that many ways to generate creature tokens in Kamigawa block. And there's really just a handful of ways to do that in a recurring manner. So that makes the sack effect here a lot more relevant because your opponent can't just keep, you know, cranking out one once to to sack to it. And the other thing I like about the Marauder is like when you do get to the part of the game where he can't attack effectively anymore, which might be quite a while, he's allowed to block, which kind of surprises me. A lot of these aggro black creatures from back in the day and even today aren't allowed to block, but Ogre Marauder can sit back there and, you know, as a 3-1, he, he can trade with something. He can trade up and, and make combat math a little bit painful for your opponent. So I feel like this guy punches above his weight. Yeah. Um, speaking of combat math, I think there's an interesting comparison between this and Azumi Ronin from Champions. Huh. Uh, they're both three mana, three ones that are kind of frustrating to block. Uh, the Nizumi Ronin is just a three one with Bushido one. So it uh, gets a little more buff when it is blocked or is blocking. So the Ronin kind of a, like trades up more efficiently in that one-on-one fight, but this is probably more often going to be a two for one. So I, I think both of those cards can, you know, have a real place in like a, a black aggro kind of archetype. Yeah, it's an interesting point now that you mention it, because I do wonder, are we just like overloading this three drop slot? Like we've got Nazumi Ronin, we have Thief of Hope, we have um, Hired Muscle that we're excited about. Like we may end up just needing to make some cuts in the black three slot. Black is black does pretty well on the three drops. Yeah. Yeah, we'll worry about that a little bit further down the line. Something to think about. One more testament to this card's power. This actually saw some block constructed play. Um, There was a deck in... um, in Champions of Kamigawa Block Constructed, a deck called Black Hand. Uh, that was a black aggro deck that's named for Hand of Cruelty, which is like a, a black knight variant, you know, like a two two drop over or like high rate black creature from Saviors of Kamigawa. Um, and this saw uh, play in that deck just as like, yeah, this is tough to deal with, even in a constructed sense. It's just a three, one, three power creature that crashes in every single turn and creates some inevitability. Wow. Good job, Marauder. And what about your uh, your rating on this thing, Connor? I'm a playable 2x. I feel like I'm, again, maybe being too generous to all these black 3-drops. We'll have to revisit it later. But of all the probably pretty good black 3-drops we've talked about, I think this is my favorite. I had it a playable 3x, actually. But since you mentioned, wow. since you mentioned <laughs> how many 3-drops in black we have, and I think we just, we just have a lot of 3-drops generally across multiple colors. Like, it's a pretty solid slot compared to a lot of others in Kamigawa. But anyway, I I think three copies of this is definitely too many. So probably playable 2x. He's definitely playable though. Yeah, I I agree. Playable 2x seems like a pretty decent starting point. All right. And that is it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. Hold on, I gotta take this. Okay. Hello? Call for who? Who is it? Oh. I'm sorry, Austin. I gotta take this. It's a call for blood. Oh my God. Okay, thank you all for listening. Um, Please uh, follow the show on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. It helps a lot. Uh, We try to release every two weeks or so, but uh, it can be a little bit intermittent here and there. And if you like the show and if you made it this far, I think you you probably did, right? Please share it with a friend. Post it in a Discord channel, text it to somebody, uh, comment on YouTube or Reddit. It really means a lot to us. Uh, We we really care about these topics and we hope you do too. Um, And if you have thoughts or feedback on any of the cards or memories we share, just uh, comment, email, let us know. Until next time though, I'm Austin. And I'm Connor. Thanks for listening.